Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon. Welcome, welcome. I'm still one of my writers, in this case, Emma. Thank you, Emma's written me a script. Linda Hazard's Deadly Cure for Disease. <laughs> it's actually more right here, isn't it? A deadly cure for disease. Well, I guess it does cure the disease. There's that great quote. Oh, I, I don't know who originally said it or anything, but it, the, the one with like uh, cancer. It's like cancer never beats you. It's always a draw because the cancer doesn't survive it. It's like that's morbid but it does cure cancer death sure does let's crack on oh the format of the show if you're new here is uh, i've never read this before we're going to explore it together let's go i've never heard of linda hazard sounds like you need to take some care around her with the name hazard oh i tried to think of a clever joke there but it didn't come to me in time these are not edited <laughs> i mean they are edited but i don't like come up with clever jokes and then put them in ahead of time it's all a cold read I've always had a love for reading. Though my Kindle is stock full of books on true crime these days, some of my favorite authors include Tom Clancy, love Tom Clancy, Sarah J. Mass, Laura Thalassa, Deborah Harkness, Lee Berg-Dogo, and of course, the esteemed Sir Terry Pratchett. I know Tom Clancy and Terry Pratchett. I don't know any of the others, I'm afraid. I never could get into gothic horror, though. And yet, when I researched this case, I couldn't help but think that it would have made a good gothic horror story. It is all the elements needed for a thrilling story, a secluded house, a deranged doctor, a missing heiress, fantastical twists, and a badass hero. Wait, is this a real story? <laughs> it does sound like a character, like characters from a book. So let's get into it. A nurse comes a-calling. Let's set the scene, shall we? It's the 1st of June, 1911, and the Union Steamship Company's steamer the SS Marimar has just arrived in Vancouver on the eastern coast of Canada from Sydney, Australia. Oh my god, that must have been a hell of a journey. You're crossing the Pacific like 100 years ago, 120 years ago. 120? 110 years ago? Apologies, I'll get there eventually. Um, that's a journey, right? How long do you think that takes by steamship? It's got to be weeks, right? And I feel like today, it'd be like, yeah, you're on a giant cruise ship, and there's a swimming pool, there's a theater, there's like 700 restaurants, you're having a gay old time. But like back in the day, I'd be like, oh, it's just, it's just cold, and the food's horrible. <laughs> I'm terribly seasick. On board is 56-year-old Margaret Conway, and she just spent the past month off. Boom, there we go, traveling in a third-class room aboard the SS Marimar, worried about out of her mind. Yeah, although I guess, like, I've seen that Titanic movie. If you're traveling in first class, I guess it's about the same time as the Titanic. Okay, so they did have nice ships, right? Not if you're traveling third class, then you're a peasant. But, like, if you're in first, they had, like, 
great bars and restaurants and these beautiful rooms, cigar lounges, promenades, just to let you know that you're better than everybody else. In her bag, she has a collection of letters and telegrams. The first is a telegram dated the 30th of April that read, Cable, Margaret Conway, Melbourne, Australia. Come SS Marimar, May 8th, first class, Claire. Sounds like that first class didn't work out, did it? There's also a bundle of letters that she had received from Dora and Claire Williamson, the two women she'd raised since they were babies. For the past year, they'd been traveling all over Canada and the US and had recently spent some time visiting their uncle in Seattle. Their letters were full of stories of the health spas they'd visited, the interesting people that they'd met, their plans to travel back to England and Australia in April and May respectively, and a wish for their beloved Margaret to come and see them in the US. The most recent is a letter from Claire. It is dated the 2nd of May, 1911, and it consists of four pages. It was posted from the home of Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard in Alala, Hilltop County, Washington, and was sent to Hawaii for Margaret to collect on her way to Vancouver. And lastly, Margaret had a cablegram dated the 17th of May, 1911, explaining that she has to ask the agent at the Commercial Pacific Cablegram office for a letter. It ends, both quite well, Williamson. But it is the contents of Claire's letter that has Margaret worried. The four pages are covered in writing on both sides, and the top section of the first page has been filled in later, almost as if Claire had run out of paper but still had a lot that needed to be said. In it, Claire explains that she and her older sister Dora had become unwell soon after they'd arrived in Vancouver a year earlier. When we were in Seattle in September, we heard of a lady fasting specialist, and we had her book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease, which I studied carefully at Riverside. I found she is the only licensed fasting doctor in the world, and of course, is the above Dr. Hazard. Um... Wow, times don't change. This is like 100 years ago. And there's still people out there being like, yes, cure your diseases with fasting. Cure your diseases with fucking Akai Berry or whatever the fuck. Like, stop it. People, people are still as gullible as they were 100 years ago. And it's like science has come really far to be like, no, fasting doesn't, doesn't cure diseases. I mean, it, it might make you thinner. <laughs> it might be good for you, but it's not curing your diseases. Claire continues to explain that they'd gone to meet with Dr. Hazard and told her about their various health issues. Dr. Hazard had found them both to be in a very bad state and had told them they would both die within a few years if they didn't do something about their health immediately. Let me guess. <laughs> Dr. Hazard's the sort of doctor you go to. It's like, well, what's the prescription? It's fasting, isn't it, doctor? It's like, yes, it is. So why do you need to even go to the doctor if the one prescription is fasting? Under Dr. Hazard's watchful eye and with the help of a nurse, they started following Dr. Hazard's fasting ritual and underwent daily thorough internal washings. Oh, God, that's like the uh, up-the-bum spray-out, isn't it? Oh, a.k.a. enemas. Yeah, that's what it's called. That's the science word. Enema. Uh, which had cleaned their intestines of impurities. Mm-hmm. Okay, quoting again. We have been all the time either on a very small quantity of strained fruit juices or strained vegetable broth, such as tomatoes with water poured and cooked gently, then poured through a fine strainer without pressing them. Last week we began to pick up, so the doctor allowed us to begin our first step towards solids. We have beautiful raisins from Spain and a little milk from her cow. I'm thriving well on it. I like the raisins immensely after eight weeks on liquid. This doesn't sound good for you, right? I mean, I'm like, I'm not against fasting. I think fasting's quite... I used to do that thing where you didn't, where you fasted like two days a week. The idea is you can just eat whatever you want on the other five days and then you just fast for two days. And I just, I don't know why I did it. I like, this was before I was 30. I could just eat whatever I wanted anyway and it didn't matter. <laughs> but I don't know, I just tried it. And I found it quite easy and quite nice. Like, you really look forward to food. You really think about food a lot more rather than just stuffing your face all the time. Well, now that I've got older, less stuffing my face all the time and just thinking about, oh, I shouldn't eat that much, should I? Shouldn't eat that much. It did happen. It's like, oh, now I can gain weight. Oh, son of a 
Not very much, but it does happen now. So that's a bummer. Claire went on to explain that she and Dora had been moved to Dr. Hazard's newly established health sanitarium at Wilderness Heights in Alala just 10 days earlier. According to Claire, no one could have provided the two sisters with the loving care they were receiving from Dr. Hazard and her educated husbands, the philosophical and very gentlemanly Samuel Hazard. Sam Hazard sounds like a superhero. Claire also told Margaret that Dr. Hazard, Dr. Hazard also sounds like a superhero. Hazard is a badass name. I'm sorry, I know you're a bad person who seems to be like poisoning people or whatever, or like fasting people to death, but Hazard is a cool name. Claire also told Margaret that Dr. Hazard was in the process of erecting cabins on the property for her and Dora to live in. Each sister would have their own cabin, and each cabin would have a spacious veranda out front so they could sleep outside if they wanted to. <laughs> okay, or let me, let me tell you what I'll be doing. If there's somewhere to sleep inside, that's where I'll be sleeping, because just generally prefer sleeping inside. Weird, isn't it? From the sound of it, Claire saw it all as some big adventure that they were about to embark on, but then Claire lamented the fact that she and Dora might not be well enough to meet Margaret when the SS Maramar arrived in Vancouver. Claire admitted to not feeling well enough to walk and told Dr. Margaret that Dora's mental health had taken a turn for the worst. Quote, The doctor had a long talk with me last night about Dory. She may take months to get her brain right, which you know has been weak the last few years. Her memory is going so completely. I will tell you details when you come, and I conceive the doctor will tell you about us both okay it sounds like she's just they've just fallen into this like weird culty doctor's trap and i get the feeling they're quite rich right because they're off just like traveling the world as women right because like if you're a peasant woman back in 1911 life's gonna be pretty shitty where if like these girls seem to be off on some like grand adventure what did they call it was it the grand tour where like americans like rich americans would go and tour around europe for like a year or whatever that sounds like a laugh but as Margaret would soon find out, Claire and Dora were worse off than Claire had let on. In fact, Claire Williamson had passed away on the 19th of May 1911, and when Margaret arrived at Dr. Hazard's health sanatorium on the 2nd of June, Dora wasn't far behind her. Oh my god. Okay. That's terrible. They die. Already? We're just starting this story, Emma! Just let me interrupt the podcast today to tell you about today's wonderful sponsor, Rocket Money. Are your subscriptions draining your wallet? Do you know the average person has 12 paid subscriptions? <laughs> I, don't, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but really only. <laughs> I have so many more than 12 paid subscriptions, it's embarrassing. And they might not even remember subscribing to half of those. Oh boy, do you not. If you've got no idea how much you're spending each month, you need Rocket Money. It's this great app that tracks all of your expenses so you know exactly where your money is going. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Look, most people think they're spending $80 on subscriptions, when in reality, wait, <laughs> you know what the number is? Okay, if it's like 80, that's like what most people think. You think, yeah, yeah, about 80. And I'll say it's about 80. <laughs> but no, it's not. Because it's closer to $200 a month. That's a fifth of the way to $1,000. When you're signed up for so many things like streaming services that you use to watch one show or free trials for delivery that you don't use, it's easy to lose track. With Rocket Money, you can easily cancel the ones you don't want with just the press of a button. No more long hold times or annoying emails with customer service. Rocket Money does all the work for you. They can even negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money will take care of the rest. That's ridiculously amazing. Why wouldn't you use this? Three million users and counting and Rocket Money users save an average of $720 per year. That's amazing. Look, stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash casual. That's rocketmoney.com slash casual. Rocketmoney.com slash casual. 
I'm going to see if I can get down to less than 12 subscriptions and be slightly less overwhelmed by that. <laughs> now back to today's episode. Fasting for the cure of disease. Now, at the time, dieting wasn't exactly a new thing, but the people who came up with these new diets basically had no idea what the hell they were doing. In the early 1800s, English gentlemen like Beau Brummel and Lord Byron followed all kinds of odd and unhealthy diets and would weigh themselves religiously. At one point, Lord Byron only drank soda water and ate potatoes that had soaked in vinegar. In 1816, he lived on toast, tea, and vegetable dinners and smoked cigars to curb his hunger. Does work, though. Like, smoking and, like, curbing your hunger. It's like, I enjoy an occasional cigar. And it's like, if you're hungry and you have a cigar, it's like, no, not hungry. Don't know why that happens, but it does. You're like, should we go out for dinner? It's like, nah, let's just drink. <laughs> in fact, many of the fads we still follow today were developed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries by fans of alternate medicine. The Banting Diet was developed by Carpenter slash Undertaker, it's an unusual combination of jobs, called William Banting in 1863, Carpenter slash Undertaker slash Dietitian. And in the early 1900s, businessman and writer Horace Fletcher became known as the Great Masticator when he started the Chewing craze. Wait, is this the dude who is like, you gotta chew each mouthful of food a hundred times? And did he end up dying of like mouth cancer? Isn't that the story? His diet required his followers to chew each mouthful of food until it was liquid before they swallowed and claimed that it would help with weight loss and prevent diabetes. In 1918, Dr. Lulu Peter Hunt Peters introduced the world to the idea of counting calories. The Hay Diet gave us concepts of protein and starch, and Dr. John Kellogg encouraged low-fat, low-protein, and vegetarian diets at his Battle Creek Health Sanitarium. Some of this makes sense, though. Like, counting calories, obviously, is something that has been well-established to work. Like, if it's just, come on, like, calories in, calories out, right? If you eat tons of calories and don't exercise, you're going to get fat. If you eat less calories and burn a lot of them, you're going to get skinny. Like, it's not rocket science. Fasting, however, wasn't a new concept since many Eastern religions and cultures have been practicing intermittent fasting for centuries. But in the early 20th century, practitioners of alternative medicine took fasting to the extreme by claiming that prolonged fasting was the key to cleansing the body and healing the mind. Well, that's not real. Like, the cleansing the body. Whenever someone's like, we're gonna get rid of those toxins, it's like, yeah, okay, sure you are. <laughs> it's like, uh, a mate of mine, I was having a debate with him, and he was not a debate, just, it was almost like, it was pointless because he was like, yeah, 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 I, I, the sauna is so healthy for you. It's so healthy and blah, blah, blah. And it gets, you know, you sweat out everything. You get rid of all those toxins. And I'm like, no, you don't. There's no science to back that up. And he's like, there's loads of science to back that up. And then it's like, okay, well, that's where the debate ends, isn't it? Because you think there is. I think there isn't. Fairly sure I'm like sauna. Fine. It's not unhealthy. And I guess like if you go in there and sit in there and you sweat a little bit, you're not getting rid of any toxins. I mean, you're, like, getting hot, and I guess that's elevating your heart rate, so that can't be bad, but surely that, I think that's where it ends. It's not like you're sweating out the bad things in your body. You know, just go for a brisk walk, and you're probably gonna have the same effect, aren't you? I'm sure people in the comments are being like, actually, Simon, according to, like, in, in Finland, there are people who live for ages, and it's like, yeah, 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 fine, fine. Science! Show me the studies! Show me that it's not just them getting a little bit hot. Show me that it's not just them getting the same benefit as a slightly brisk walk. Dr. Edward Dewey is credited for pioneering therapeutic fasting. He claimed that excessive eating was the cause of all disease and psychological problems and believed that abstinence from food could cure mental disorders. Okay. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, I used to have schizophrenia. And then I just stopped eating and it was fine. <laughs> 
A British physician called William Dibbles would... Great. <laughs> Dibbles is like the opposite of Hazard. If there was a dude called Dr. Hazard and Mr. Tibbles... Oh no, he's a physician as well. Dr. Hazard and Dr. Tibbles. I'll be like, Dr. Hazard is beating the sh** out of Dr. Tibbles at lunch break. And would explain in his book Dietics, or Food in Health and Disease, that even though intermittent fasting had its benefits, Dr. Dewey's claims that prolonged fasting was a cure-all for illness and disease was a foolish delusion, and that he took fasting to an irrational extreme. I take it all back, Mr. Tibbles. Dr. Tibbles, I like you. You're a sensible doctor and a big brain. Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard was one of Dr. Dewey's students, and she took it even further, believing that our bodies are like machines that need nutrition to function, and that overeating or eating for pleasure instead of necessity clogs up the body's natural mechanics, causing it to work harder than it should, resulting in organic disease. Well, I mean, there's a little grain of truth in there, isn't it? Because if you just keep gorging yourself on cakes, you're going to get all your arteries clogged up and then have a heart attack and die. Like, heart disease kills more than anything else, right? In, in like, uh, rich countries? Because we're all gluttons, and we're eating so much. <laughs> Firstly, I have to take a pill for cholesterol. <laughs> oh, that's like, I don't know, I don't, eat, I don't eat bad, I don't eat good, I just eat somewhere in the middle. But I just have genetically high cholesterol, so I have to take a pill for it. But it's like, <laughs> that, that's the truth in that, right? That cholesterol's going to clog up your heart, and then you're going to die. Not with me, my cholesterol's ridiculously low now. According to Dr. Hazard, illnesses are simply a symptom of organic disease and the body must be purified before it can heal itself naturally. According to the book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease, quote, Fasting is the voluntary denial of food to a system which is diseased and which, because of disease, does not require nourishment until rested, cleansed, and eager to take up the labor of digestion. Yes. <laughs> oh, you're sick. Just stop eating so you don't overtax your body with that whole food thing. <laughs> you don't need it until you're healed. <laughs> This is so insane! She believed that once the body started showing signs of illness, it was necessary to start a fasting ritual right away, which included a diet of vegetable broths, portion of some fruit, and some milk. I like vegetable broths, though. Like, I sometimes would just take stock cubes and just make stock and drink that. It's probably really unhealthy because it's so salty. But those stock cubes, sometimes I'll just nibble on a little stock cube and it's like, Ugh! but it tastes, it's so much little taste in a tiny little thing. Part of her treatments included the following daily enemas to rinse out the organs, hot baths, cold compressors, osteopathic manipulation to arrange the organs as <laughs> the help of body rid itself of waste, and of course, lots of sunlight and fresh air. It can be argued that Dr. Hazard had a good reason to believe that sometimes medicine did more harm than good. A sickly start. Dr. Hazard was born Linda Laura Burfield on the 18th of December 1867 in Carver, Minnesota, and grew up on a farm outside of Star Lake Township. Her parents both believed that in order to stay healthy, children needed good food, lots of exercise, and fresh air. Um, cool, her parents seem to know more about medicine than she does. And Mrs. Burfield ensured that her family followed a mostly vegetarian diet. But when Linda was 10, her father took her and six siblings to see a doctor for their annual checkup. Mr. Burfield thought that the doctor would be able to give them precautionary treatments that would keep them from getting sick. Instead, the doctor told Mr. Burfield that because they lived on a farm, his children were at risk of ingesting all kinds of internal parasites. So the doctor prescribed the Burfield children blue pills to help prevent parasites from taking hold in their intestines. Blue pills? <laughs> Definitely means something else today, doesn't it? Now, for those who don't know, these blue pills were also known as blue mass pills, and according to the Royal Society of Chemistry, they were used to treat toothaches, constipation, debilitating pain, parasitic infections, and tuberculosis. The main ingredients in these pills were glycerol, rose honey, licorice, hollyhock, and mercury. Ah, yes. 
<laughs> the old mercury, well known for being so good. I mean, maybe it does kill the intestine, the, the, the parasites inside you, but it also kills you because it's mercury and it's highly poisonous. The Burfield children all took it for years and it caused heavy vomiting and diarrhea. And another doctor prescribed calomel as a remedy. Just like the blue pills, calomel was another one to cure and it contained both mercury and chlorine. <laughs> Ah, you know what'll cure your mercury? More mercury. It ate away at their stomach linings, caused their teeth to fall out, and made it almost impossible to keep food in. According to Linda, I now know what, of course, I could not then suspect, that this powerful poison did irreparable injury to my intestines, retarding and preventing their development and growth to such a degree that even to this day, I am compelled to resort to the enema daily. I understand why people went to these, like, you know, wacko doctors in the past where they're like, ah, just fast for your diseases, because they went to the regular doctor and he prescribed the mercury. The difference today is like now medicine follows like the scientific methods. Whereas back in the past, it was like, well, you might be, you know, <laughs> just it's like, yeah, take this potion, see what happens. But times have changed. We shouldn't be like this anymore. We should be like, oh, look, science. <laughs> look, this actually works. Rather than like eating mercury or going to the fasting doctor. But the crazy thing is no one's eating mercury, but they're still going to the fasting doctor in the 21st century. Stop it. By the time she was married at 18, Linda was still suffering the effects of mercury poisoning and believed that natural medicine was the solution to all of her health problems, which isn't unreasonable. I don't blame you, Linda. You're like, you, your life has been screwed up by regular medicine. Over the years, she tried out various diets and natural cures and took a course on osteopathy, which is a form of alternative medicine that involves massaging and manipulating the body in order to encourage itself to heal. I remember there was a mate of mine at school. And like once a week, he had some like neck problems or whatever. And he'd come in and he'd be like, oh, I'm sorry I'm late, I was at the osteopath this morning. And I was like, I just assumed that was a doctor. And then I didn't find out until like a few years ago or like, I don't know, 10 years ago that osteopathy is not medicine. So it's like, yeah, no, I had to miss this lesson because I went to see the witch doctor. It's like, what the You <laughs> Just going to like someone who doesn't actually do anything. I'm uh, sure it costs a fortune as well, because of course it does. Do you know what they call alternative medicine that's been proved to work? Medicine. In either 1897 or 1898, she stumbled across Dr. Edward Dewey's book, The True Science of Living, The New Gospel of Health. In it, Dr. Dewey gives his readers private lectures on the wonders of fasting, and Linda was hooked. She became obsessed with Dr. Dewey's methods, and when her husband left her in April 1898, the now 31-year-old Linda sent her two children to live with her grandmother, virtually abandoning them so that she could pursue a career in medicine. And she left for Meadville, Pennsylvania, to study the fasting cure under Dr. Edward Dewey. The two became good friends, and soon after, she opened an office in Minneapolis and advertised her services as a fasting specialist. In the pamphlets she handed out to advertise a new practice, she claimed that she was able to perform wonders with the fasting cure to quote, cases pronounced incurable by medical physicians recovered under the regimen I imposed, and the symptoms presented range from chronic constipation, diabetes, Bright's disease, and syphilis to paralysis. Good lord, it's like, what happened to you? Fell off a horse, broke my neck, now can't walk. Don't worry, we got you sorted, just don't eat. Oh, I'm out of the chair! No, I mean, the first thing is like chronic constipation. Yeah, that can be probably diet-related. Diabetes, certainly diet-related. I mean, I'm thinking type 2 diabetes, probably not type 1 diabetes. You're not going to get rid of that. Can you get rid of type 2 diabetes if you have it? Because type 2 diabetes is the one you get if you're fat, right? And then if you get thin, does your diabetes go away or are you from that point onwards diabetic? 
I don't even know. Linda started referring to herself as Dr. Burfield and made a name for herself in Minneapolis as the fasting doctor. Yeah, something I recently learned, titles are not controlled in America. So you could just call yourself, like, I could just go around and be like, Dr. Whistler, yes, hello, I know everything. And it's just like, you could just do that. You can't do that, like, in other countries. You have to actually earn that, <laughs> which is crazy. Just call yourself Sir or just Legend. She officially divorced her first husband in 1902 and married Samuel Hazard on the 11th of November 1903. The two of them moved to Washington State in 1907, and with the help of her lawyer, John Arthur, she applied to have her medical practice grandfathered by the Washington Medical Board in 1910, meaning that she didn't need a degree to practice alternative medicine and was able to get practicing medical license based solely on her past experience as an osteopath. <laughs> I'm glad that these days there's like rules and stuff. You can't just be like, I'm a medical doctor. It's like, how's that? It's like, my dad was an osteopath. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Grandfathered in. From here on out, she would forever be known as Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard, the fasting specialist, and she dreamed of opening her own health sanitarium, which would rival Dr. Kellogg's sanitarium in Battle Creek. I think I should get that. Like, my, my most of my family are like, they're all doctors. And I think I should, my grandparents were, my dad was. I think I should be grandfathered in, to be honest. Like, I think that's fair. I think, I think I should be allowed to practice medicine. It seems fair. It seems like obviously I know all about it because my relatives do it. <laughs> the past is so fucking stupid. British heiress. Evelyn Dorothea Williamson was born on the 9th of September 1873 in present day, good lord, Tiruch Balia in India. Oh, that makes more sense. I was like, is this an American name? And it's like, no, it's somewhere in India. So look, that in India, it's like, okay, unpronounceable stuff. It's like, yeah, of course. Whereas America is like, it's the same language that I speak and you have these crazy place names. It's like, what is that? Although where, crazy place names. There's somewhere in the UK called Western Supermare. It's like, <laughs> what the Western Supermare? Shout out to everyone in Western Supermare. Let me know in the comments if you're from West. Is Western Supermare even a big town? It's probably not. There's probably no one listening in Western Supermare. Her father was a British officer in the Imperial Army Medical Service and was seriously injured after Dora's birth. As a result, he and his family returned to England, but his health never really recovered, and the Williamsons hired the 19-year-old Margaret Conway, an Australian nursemaid, to help them look after their baby daughter. The second daughter, Gertrude, was born a few days before the new nurse arrived, but she was a sickly baby, and Margaret was put in charge of looking after little Dora, while Mrs. Williamson devoted all her time to the sickly Gertrude. Enid Lillian Clare Williamson was born in London on the 4th of October, 1877. Mr. Williamson passed away in December, and little Gertrude followed four months later, plunging the family into grief. That, it's like, as soon as like, ah, oh, the child was born is a bit sickly. Like, today I'll be like, well, okay, they're just gonna recover. And I'm like, no, nah, they're dead. Like, 18, 1800s, it's like a sickly child. That's death, that's death. Because people had like 19 children in the hope that two would survive. Jesus Christ, the past. This is just like, the. this is the past was the worst episode, isn't it? Still, Dora and Claire had their mother and Margaret, or Toddy as they called her, and they lived a life of privilege, went on skiing trips in Switzerland, attended schools in France, and traveled all over Europe. I knew they were privileged. You could sense it, couldn't you? When Mrs. Williamson, set by sense, I mean they went on extravagant first-class travels when they were kids around the world a hundred years ago, so it wasn't exactly, it was not exactly hard to sense, was it? When Mrs. Williamson passed away in 1893, the Williamson sisters inherited their paternal grandfather's fortune. At the time, it was valued at over a million dollars. Holy sh**, a million dollars in 1893. Uh, included stock and properties all over the world. Today, their fortune were worth $31 million. Since the inflation count, uh, worth more 
than $31 million since the inflation calculator I used only goes back to 1913. Oh, sh- you can at least double or triple that, right? God damn. That meant the 20-year-old Dora and 17-year-old Claire could afford to do whatever their hearts desired, and it meant that if they didn't want to get married, they didn't have to. For years, the sisters traveled to their hearts' content and didn't feel the need to settle down anywhere. With the loving Margaret in tow, they stayed in luxury hotels for months on end, drank tea, went for spa treatments, and read mostly. But as the saying goes, an idle mind is the devil's playground, and over the years, the sisters developed an interest in natural healing treatments, and they tried out every health fad that they came across. Oh, wow. This does sound nice, though. <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> just inheriting a ton of money and just, like, traveling around the world, staying in nice hotels. Oh, it's like, I don't know. It would lead you to be pretty idle, wouldn't it? According to Margaret, neither of the girls had any serious health issues. Dora occasionally suffered from pains in her knees, which had been diagnosed as rheumatism or rheumatoid arthritis. Claire had suffered from nervous exhaustion or depression as a child and developed painful periods when she grew older. An American doctor had diagnosed her with a tilted back or retroverted uterus. Is that a real condition? Is that a real word? Retroverted? and had told her that because she didn't work for a living, there was no need to perform an operation to fix it. Despite enjoying a relatively clean bill of health, the two sisters kept looking for a cure or remedy for their various ills. But as one of their possibly envious cousins explains, being rich is the cause of all their problems. Claire and Dorothea are ill because they can afford to be ill. Wait, wouldn't one of their cousins also have the same granddad? I guess it could be on the other side of the family, right? That would make sense. In September 1910, the Williamson sisters were staying at the Empress Hotel in Victoria, British Columbia, when they came across an advertisement for the Hazard Institute of Natural Therapeutics and Dr. Hazard's claims of being a fasting specialist. On September the 2nd, Claire wrote to Dr. Hazard asking for her advice and telling her that Dora wasn't doing well. Quote, She was suffering from swollen glands and has now developed acute rheumatic pains in her knees, which are both enlarged, and today the pain has gone into the leg as well and is impossible for her to walk. Claire goes on to explain that two years earlier, Dorothy had been diagnosed with Graves' disease, an autoimmune disorder that can cause hypothyroidism. People with Graves' disease often develop protruding eyes and can develop a goiter or growth in their neck when the thyroid gland becomes enlarged. That sounds unpleasant. Graves' disease is a chronic condition, but these days it can be treated with either surgery or medication. But Claire claimed that Dora had been able to manage her symptoms by undergoing regular osteopathic treatments, following a strict vegetarian diet and fasting on and off. Why not just take... Oh, because today it can be cured with surgery and medication. Back in the day, it was like, good luck with that. With your enlarged thyroid and giant eyes. <laughs> When Claire wrote her first letter to Dr. Hazard, Dora had been already following an extreme fast for just over a week. All she takes is a little orange juice in hot distilled water about three times a day and a pear or a few grapes. The eyes just now are very bloodshot and seem to be eliminating a good deal of matter. Oof, rough. Her period was due ten days ago. She has very sharp pain over the right temple whenever she moves and today feels too unwell to leave her bed. Well, honestly, it sounds like she could probably use some food. <laughs> She started this fasting diet, diet, and now she's got horrible stuff coming out of her eyes and constant headaches in a specific part of her brain. Um, have you tried eating, maybe? <laughs> Over the course of the next few months, the sisters and Dr. Hazard would write several letters to each other. Dr. Hazard sent them a copy of her book to study and suggested that the conditions could be easily treatable if they switched up their diet. She recommended that they start only by eating vegetable broths and cornbread to clear their bodies of toxins. I love cornbread. And when Claire wrote back complaining that they were feeling a little weak after only eating cornbread and vegetable broths for a few weeks, Dr. Hazard responded saying that the sense of weakness that you now experience is the result of the toxic products that are stirred up through the fast you have undergone 
upon and the regimen upon which you have placed yourself. Do not hesitate to utilize the enema. It is the most valuable assistant we have, for it serves to remove the rubbish that gathers despite ourselves in the colon. Rubbish that is the source of so much trouble through absorption into the circulation. Claire asked Dr. Hazard if it would be possible for them to go to her sanitarium for a consultation and treatment, and Dr. Hazard explained that the sanitarium wasn't open for business yet, but they could come and see her at her offices in Seattle. Once she had decided on the best treatment to prescribe them, they could stay in the Buena Vista apartments in Seattle until she was able to house them more comfortably at the sanitarium. Claire wrote back and informed Dr. Hazard that they'd be traveling to Seattle from California in February 1911 and will appreciate it if she could start their treatment then. The sisters didn't tell Margaret or any of their family members what they were planning, because as Claire explained to Dr. Hazard, quote, Unfortunately, we cannot tell them we are going to stop in Seattle to do a fast, as already they disapprove of our way of living. In fact, we are not mentioning it to anyone. Uh-oh. <laughs> Dr. Hazard. I, I mean, obviously, this is fine. Like, you'd never think about it, but it's like Dr. Hazard's probably like, Hey, hey, hey. Hey, 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 no one knows you're here. How rich are you again? How about you leave me all your money? <laughs> Jesus Christ, here we go. According to Dora, they met with Dr. Hazard in her office on the Northern Bank and Trust Building in Seattle on the 27th of February 1911. After their consultation with her, they stayed in a furnished apartment in the Buena Vista Apartments. It was close to Dr. Hazard's office, so they were able to walk there in order to receive their daily treatments. The cost of these treatments was a considerable $60, or $1,849 today per person per month, but they reasoned that it would be worth it. Which, I mean, if you're worth like $30 million or whatever, $1,849 is not a month, isn't It's probably not going to be that much to you. Dr. Hazard said that after the fast, our bodies would be clean and in perfect health. It's estimated that when they arrived in Seattle that February, Dora weighed a healthy 166 pounds or 75 kilograms, and Claire weighed 158 pounds or 72 kilograms. Wait, this is like back in the day, so people were short, right? I weigh 75 kilograms, and I'm just off six foot. So... Is that a healthy weight? That seems like I'm assuming she's shorter than me by quite a bit because she's one, a woman, and two, in the past. That does sound... Isn't that a lot? Every day for the first two weeks, the two sisters got up and got dressed, and at 9am they would each drink a cup of tomato broth and a glass of orange juice. On weekdays, they'd make their way to the bank and trust building around 11am, and there Dr. Hazard would provide the accessories that formed a part of their treatment. She had them squat down on a bathtub with their knees against their chests while she performed an enema on them, which entailed shoving a pipe up their bottom and pouring six litres of warm water down a funnel into their bodies. She'd then remove the... <sighs> Oh, I've got a vivid image in my mind. <laughs> and the sisters had to expel the water and whatever toxins were flushed along with their feces into a bucket. After, each sister received osteopathic massages, during which she'd vigorously beat their backs, necks, and heads with her fist while she ordered them to eliminate. Jesus Christ, what is going on? And later, she'd do the same to the rest of their bodies. After this brutal massage, they'd head back home, have another cup of vegetable broth for dinner, and then it was off to bed. Dora would explain that after the first week, quote, Claire looked weak and did not seem to have any strength, but she was still able to go about, and we both struggled out as it was represented to us it was better for us to keep going all the time, as that would help to eliminate the poisons in our systems. Dr. Hazard told us we had a great deal, and it was better to have it worked out the more we walked about, however bad we felt, it was better to walk and struggle against it, and we went out first mornings and afternoons for a week. <laughs> People wrote so weird in the past, barely could read that. So they're basically like, yeah, 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 you're feeling super weak, but you've got to go out and like, move around. 
Okay, fair enough. For the first week, everything went well, and the sisters convinced themselves that they were doing better. But by the end of the second week, they started fainting and sleeping the day away and were unable to get out of bed. Hmm, I wonder why. Maybe it's all the lack of eating. The daily enema treatment had gone from a 30-minute enema to a two-hour-long enema, and then four-hour-long enemas, until they were draped over cloth hammocks in the bathtubs in Dr. Hazard's office, enduring day-long enemas. What the f***, man? Eventually, what have they got in there anyway? They're not even eating. It's just like water goes in, water comes out. It's still drinkable. Oh, Simon, no. Eventually, they didn't even have the strength to make their own vegetable broth, so during the fourth week of their fasting, Nurse Nellie Sherman was called to assist the girls with whatever they needed. Nurse Sherman wordlessly followed Dr. Hazard's orders and helped the sisters bathe, drink their broth, endure the enemas, and walk to the sunroom on weekends for some much-needed exercise and sunshine. According to Dora, Dr. Hazard was kindness itself during those first weeks and offered to help them with whatever she could. She was particularly interested in their business affairs and whether there were any business concerns that they couldn't deal with now as they had trouble writing to their friends and family. Uh-oh, Dr. Hazard. Why are you delving into that, Dr. Hazard? Maybe you're seeing an opportunity. She also convinced them to hand over their cash, deed documents, and jewelry to her so that she could place them in the office safe for safekeeping. Uh-oh. It's not their fault now, because they're, like, delirious through all of this, like, lack of food. They're just like, yeah, okay, sure, yeah, you can do that. Because they can't make decisions, because they're, like, they're not mentally all there anymore, because they're not eating. She also had her lawyer, John Arthur, come and see them so that he could help them with any financial concerns that they might have. Uh-oh. But then their neighbors started complaining to Nurse Sherman about the state of the two sisters' health. They were concerned that the sisters were starving to death, and they weren't the only ones. That's probably because they were starving to death. Even Nurse Sherman reached out to a friend of hers, an osteopath who'd recently treated the sisters, named Dr. Augusta Brewer, for advice on how to help the sisters since she was convinced they were going to die. When the neighbors started threatening to call the authorities, Dr. Hazard hastily made plans to move the sisters to a sanitarium at Alala. Nurse Sherman couldn't go to Alala, so Dr. Hazard hired a nurse, Sarah Robinson, to help her look after the two Williamson sisters, and told Nurse Robinson that the two sisters were already too far gone for her treatment to do them any good, and that she feared that Claire wouldn't last long to quote i have done everything i can for the girl it is only a matter of time days really possibly as long as a week she suffers from organic troubles with her liver and her stomach which cannot be remedied by the fast or any other treatment wilderness heights Dora and Claire were moved to Dr. Hazard's home in alala on the 21st of april 1911 after eight weeks of fasting the two sisters resembled skeletons and had to be carried downstairs in stretches before they were transported to the harbor in two ambulances. Some of the people who lived in the Buena Vista apartments watched them go, and Mary Fields would later testify that she estimated that Claire weighed less than 70 pounds, or 32 kilograms at that point. She's lost, like, more than half her weight. That's insane. Dora couldn't remember much of those first weeks in Dr. Hazard's sanatorium. It wasn't anything like the other health spas that she'd been to in the past. They didn't have the wide veranda, lush gardens, and horses that Claire had envisioned when she'd first imagined them going to Dr. Hazard's Institute of Natural Therapeutics. The property was covered in trees and wild thorn bushes. Dr. Hazard proudly referred to it as Wilderness Heights. The house was just your everyday two-story bungalow with a living room, kitchen, dining room, cellar, scullery, and two bedrooms. What is a scullery? I know that word, I just never know what it means. A scullery is a room now traditionally used for washing up dishes and laundering clothes. Oh, like a utility room. Okay. And the unfinished attic, of course, which was divided in half with rough planks to create two bedrooms where the sisters initially stayed. <laughs> These sisters are worth 
tens of millions of dollars in modern money and they're staying in the attic of someone's house in the wilderness with just like boards dividing the rooms they must be like this is not okay <laughs> dora would later testify that their health only got worse once they were moved to wilderness heights and the only thing that they could think about was the food that they were not allowed to have to quote her during our stay in the institution we repeatedly begged for food as we felt ourselves growing weaker and weaker but mrs hazard steadfastly refused to alter our daily diet I wanted food oh so much, but she kept on saying, just wait a little bit. Finally, I got into such a condition that I did not care for food and really believed against my will that I did not need any. The quote ends. 18-year-old Essie Cameron was another nurse who helped care for the Williamson sisters after they arrived at Wilderness Heights. She'd also been told that the sisters were dying and that they were just trying to make their last days as comfortable as possible. <laughs> as comfortable as possible by shoving them in an attic and continuing to starve them. What are you doing, Dr. Hazard? She had to help the sisters bathe and would later explain that the bathwater was so hot that it burned her hands and often caused the sisters to faint. She couldn't help but notice just how emaciated their bodies were. <laughs> she couldn't help but notice. They were they weighed 32 kilograms. I could pick them up with one hand. Miss Claire was terribly thin, and she had a sore on the lower part of her spine. It was ulcerated and red and quite large, about the size of a dollar or larger. The skin was drawn over her cheekbones to give her an almost skeleton-like appearance. Her upper lip did not come over her teeth, and she had some difficulty in talking because she could not close her lips. They are starving to death. This is crazy. The two sisters weren't allowed to see each other, which meant that they relied on Dr. Hazard to let them know how the other was doing. Dr. Hazard told Dora that Claire's illness was too far developed and that the fasting cure wasn't helping. Claire, on the other hand, was told that Dora's mind had left her, that she was insane, and that she might never recover. But the afternoon before Claire died, Dr. Hazard asked Dora if she'd like to see Claire and carried her to her sister's room. Claire was too weak to move, and when Dora was put down next to Claire's bed, Claire asked to speak to her alone. To quote her, my sister looked at me as if she was going to tell me something. She looked very hard at me, as if wondering if she would tell me. She did not tell it to me. I did not realize she was thinking I was insane at that time, or I would have asked her to tell me. I was that stupid, with weakness. I did not think it. Yeah, and this is the thing. Like, at this point, you're, you're not in your right mind. You might not be insane, but you can't make sensible decisions because you're so deprived of food. Your brain is just like, it requires nutrition. And if you don't give it to it, it stops working properly. According to Dr. Hazard, Claire had known that she was going to die. Dr. Hazard had warned her weeks before, so Claire got all her affairs in order. She arranged for money to be withdrawn to settle her bill and to pay for her funeral service. She also drew up a new will, naming various beneficiaries, and left them sums of money. Dora inherited Claire's portion of property that they purchased in Vancouver. Margaret inherited Claire's jewels and books. And Dr. Hazard's Institute of Natural Therapeutics received an annuity of £25, which would be about £2,420 today. Okay, that's not what I expected. I expected it all just be to sign over to Dr. Hazard. <laughs> the woman who made my last day so comfortable. <laughs> In exchange, the wooden cabin that would have been hers would be named Cabin Claire and would forever stand as testimony of her belief in Dr. Hazard's fasting cure that killed her. And then she passed away after having fasted for a total of 81 days. And the day after Claire's death, Dr. Hazard moved Dora to her own cabin, showed her the gully that ran alongside it, and suggested to Dora that no one would blame her if she jumped and brought an end to her suffering. Oh my god, Dr. Hazard, you fucking monster. To quote her, Mrs. Hazard told me that another patient of hers had thrown herself over the edge. That seemed to me very horrible, that I was so near that deep gulch, lying all alone there at night, but I had no temptation to kill myself, although Mrs. Hazard's remark put the subject in my mind. She repeatedly told me I was not sound mentally, and told me that until I began to believe it myself. 
The Last Will of Claire Williamson. Margaret Conway heard of Claire's death shortly after she had arrived in Vancouver, and the sister's uncle, John Herbert, had been notified a week earlier on the 22nd of May. Both of them went to meet with Dr. Hazard in her office in Seattle, and both of them were told a similar story regarding how Claire had died. According to Margaret, Dr. Hazard was wearing one of Claire's dresses and didn't offer her any condolences, just bluntly explained what had happened. Holy sh! do you want to look more guilty, Doc? Quote, she began to tell me at once that the girls had come to her in a very bad state of health. In fact, when Claire came to her office the first time she saw her, she was purple in the face and in a shocking state of health. And she dropped into a chair and said, Mrs. Hazard, I have come to you to be cured or to die. The quote ends. Dr. Hazard went on to explain that there really was nothing that she could have done for Claire and then explained what she'd found when she performed an autopsy on Claire's body. I was able to find a copy of Claire's death certificate in between some of the original court documents in the Washington State online archives, and on it, Dr. Hazard had noted Claire's cause of death as cirrhosis of the liver and chronic peritonitis, according to the NHS's website, that's the health service in the UK, which is amazing. Like, I always go to that. Like, you Google something and it'll be like the first thing that comes up and it'll just tell you matter-of-factly about diseases. And I'm like, that's really useful. Thank you. <laughs> it's nice. According to the NHS's website, cirrhosis of the liver is essentially liver failure, and peritonitis is an infection of the inner lining that protects your internal organs. Okay. Both are life-threatening diseases, and cirrhosis can result in peritonitis, and often patients suffering from cirrhosis waste away to nothing before their bodies inevitably give in. Cirrhosis is what I always thought was like if um, you drink too much. Like, it screws up your liver, and you get cirrhosis of the liver, and you have to get a new liver, or you die. Isn't that right? But that's not how Dr. Hazard explained it to Margaret. Dr. Hazard told the grieving woman that Claire's organs had failed her. Her liver was so hard that Dr. Hazard couldn't cut it with a knife. Her blood was so dry that it was basically powder in her veins, and her organs were so small that they were infantile in appearance. When Mr. Herbert went to see Dr. Hazard, she even went so far as to show him Claire's organs as if to try and convince him that no one could survive a condition like that. And because I know you're going to ask, she kept those dried-out organs in a bag in her desk drawer, ready for show and tell. Oh, good lord. I didn't even think to ask. I assumed they'd be, like, preserved in jars. You know, like they had back in the day, the, the jars with, like, organs in it and sh- Dr. Hazard also offered to take both Margaret and Mr. Herbert to see Claire's body at a privately owned mortuary called Butterworth and Sons because she had had Claire beautifully embalmed. Oh, you weirdo, Dr. Hazard. What's wrong with you? I thought you were just after money, but it sounds like you're a full psycho. Like, you didn't even get money, and you're, like, wearing a dress and encourage someone to kill themselves, and you're keeping her organs in a drawer. Dr. Hazard, you fucking psycho. Now later, both Margaret and John Herbert would be asked if they'd recognize the body as Claire, and neither of them did. The woman was dressed in Claire's clothing, but didn't look anything like Claire, and even though she was thin, she looked like she'd been healthy enough when she passed away. According to Mr. Herbert, the color of the hair was different from anything I had seen before. The length of the face was different. The condition of the face, cheeks, and hands was not in accordance with the condition as told to me by Mrs. Hazard. Well, that's weird. So who's the woman? It seems to be a different way. They'd be like, come see her body. It's like, that's not her. <laughs> Did you not call her out, Herbert? 
And when they went to see Dora after Claire's funeral, they felt even more certain that the body they'd seen hadn't belonged to Claire Williams. Because despite being alive, Dora Williams didn't resemble a human anymore. Margaret found Dora at Wilderness Heights, sitting outside the cabin that Dr. Hazard had built for her. Only, it wasn't the cute, cozy cabin with an enclosed veranda that Claire had described to Margaret in her letter. According to Margaret, it was a small, narrow building that resembled a hastily put-together chicken coop rather than a cabin. But what shocked her more than Dora's accommodations was the state that Dora's body was in. To quote, it was ghastly. I was looking at death's head, a skull with skin drawn tightly over the bones. Over it all was a bluish tint. Oh my god, some <laughs> Why would you just you gotta be like, we're leaving now. Let's go. Margaret explains that at first Dora broke down and begged her to take her away from Dr. Hazard's Institute, but a few hours later, Dora insisted that she was getting better. Dr. Hazard had told her so, but Margaret wasn't convinced. She watched that first day as Dora went through her daily routine, and she hated watching Dora struggle to eat the mashed potato and the handful of peas that she was allowed to quote, Dora did not seem to know how to eat, and she was so cold, she wanted her food so hot, and she was crying all the time. She wanted the food and could not eat it, and she cried over it, and then the food would get cold, and then she wanted it hot again, so it would be warmed up to practically the boiling point two or three times during the time that she was taking that little quantity of food. When Nurse Robinson left Alala in the middle of June, Margaret grabbed the opportunity to take over Dora's care. She moved into the cabin with Dora and started sneaking mashed rice or flour into the vegetable broths. At first, the food made Dora gag, but then she managed to keep it down. Soon after, she was able to finish her mashed potatoes and peas during mealtimes, and after Margaret managed to convince Dora to have some fruit juice, Dora started getting better. Oh my god, what a surprise! The food makes her better? Isn't this another thing that happens? Like, haven't they had it with, like, prisoners of war and stuff? Like, after... You know, they've been starved and they're starving for like months and months. And then they're like, okay, cool, now you can eat. And they'd eat and they'd die from like eating? Is that something that happens or is that just like an urban legend? Because I do feel you got to introduce that food slowly, right? Because otherwise your body's going to be like, yo, what the f***? When Dora slowly began to put on weight again, Margaret started making plans for them to leave Alala. She got a hold of Dora's trunks and began packing, but she quickly noticed that while some of Dora's things were missing, most of Claire's belongings and wardrobe were gone. According to Margaret, Dora told her that the night Claire had died, quote, Mrs. Hazard opened her trunks and tried on her evening dresses and evening cloak, showing herself to Dora in the dead girl's garments. She evidently appropriated whatever she fancied, as only a few trifles were left in the trunks, and Mrs. Hazard suggested that these be given to Mrs. Burford, her sister-in-law, who acted as the washerwoman. End quote. And then there was the mailbox. Soon after Margaret's arrival, Samuel Hazard installed a lock on the mailbox. Dr. Hazard had told Margaret that a new order had been issued by the postmaster that required that they lock up their mailboxes to prevent theft. But it meant that the patients living at Wilderness Heights now had to depend on Dr. Hazard to deliver and hand out their mail. Dora had written to her bank in Canada to ask about her finances, but still hadn't gotten a reply. And when Margaret happened to run into the postman and ask him about this ridiculous order, he told her that no such order had been issued. Margaret then allegedly went into Dr. Hazard's office looking for a book to read to Dora when she noticed a wooden letterbox that Samuel Hazard kept on his desk. The box then magically opened on its own, and Margaret couldn't help but notice the letters neatly placed in there. On top was a folded document that seemed to have opened itself as soon as she looked at it, and Margaret couldn't help but read it. The document stated that on the 27th of May 1911, Dora had given Samuel G. Hazard power of attorney over her, and that he had, quote, the use and benefit of receiving of and from the Canadian Bank of Commerce of Victoria, B.C., and all monies on deposit in the savings department of that said Canadian Bank of Commerce in Dora's name. Oh, sh**. 
so they be stealing that money. Margaret pocketed the document, and when she confronted Dora about it, Dora explained that she simply asked Mr. Hazard to withdraw $500 for her and send it to her uncle in Canada. At no point was Dora aware that she'd given Samuel Hazard power over her affairs. That is dangerous. Like, that is a sweeping power of attorney. Or use and benefit of receiving of and from the Canadian Bank of Commerce and all monies on deposit. Right. <laughs> if you're signing a power of attorney, make sure you know. Like, I sign power of attorneys a lot because I don't like doing stuff myself. And so I'll just like have people do things for me. And it's been like, you, but you, the, the power of attorneys are all very specific. It's like power of attorney to deal with this, to do with like finance or parking or whatever, like generally just dealing with government bodies. And it's all very specific. It's rarely like all of my affairs. <laughs> it's dangerous. I understood that it was for nothing else but to draw money from the bank in Vancouver. Margaret and Dora would later discover that the Hazards had withdrawn $583, or $17,967 today, from her account into their own. This was the last straw. Margaret finished packing Dora's bags, and when she notified Dr. Hazard that they were leaving, Dr. Hazard told her that they couldn't. According to Dr. Hazard, Claire had understood that her sister was out of her mind, and it was her will that Dora should remain at Wilderness Heights for the rest of her life. So, after Claire's death, Dr. Hazard had Dora declared mentally incompetent, which meant that the Hazards were now Dora's legal guardians. That is way sketchy. How does that happen? According to Dr. Hazard, Dora wasn't going anywhere. But neither Dora nor Margaret were willing to stay at Wilderness Heights. As Margaret later put it, it was all a nightmare, a period of horror, of starving, emaciated bodies drawing themselves about, an inferno of fear and horror. Margaret decided that she wasn't having any of that, so the 56-year-old nursemaid sneaked off the property one night and managed to send a letter to Dora's uncle, Mr. Herbert, telling him that they were being held prisoner and that they needed his help. Mr. Herbert went to see Dr. Hazard on the 19th of July, 1911, at her luxurious new offices in the Waldorf Hotel and told her that, guardian or not, Dora and Margaret were leaving. Dr. Hazard threatened to get her lawyers involved, and Mr. Herbert told her that she could do whatever she thought was necessary, but it wouldn't change the fact that Dora would be leaving her care the next day. Mr. Herbert sounds like a badass. Mr. There's, he's from that rich family, right? So he's just coming along, and he's like, he's just used to get his own way, and he's just rolling in there, and he's like, look, you can do whatever you want. Get your lawyers involved, I'll get my lawyers involved, but one thing is happening. Can legends. <laughs> so when Dora and Margaret were both packed and ready to leave, Dr. Hazard served them with a bill of $2,000, or $61,638, that stated more than $700, or $21,570 today, were still owed to the Institute for Dora's treatment. Mr. Herbert claimed that it was extortion, and Dr. Hazard insisted that, I am a licensed specialist, and I am entitled to charge whatever I wish for my services. If I wanted, I could charge more. Mr. Herbert's probably like, oh yeah. <laughs> I feel like this guy's a gangster. He's just like, excellent. That sounds like something for our attorneys to deal with. Goodbye. <laughs> it's like, sue me, bitch. <laughs> In the end, a settlement was agreed on, and they ended up paying Dr. Hazard $500, which was added to the $375.90 that was already credited to Dora's account. Okay, seems fair. Mr. Herbert's probably like, okay, whatever, go away. <laughs> Margaret and Mr. Herbert insisted that Dr. Hazard had to return all of Dora's jewels and other belongings as well, but according to Dora, she would have paid almost anything if it meant that she could finally leave the hellhole that was Wilderness Heights. But it wouldn't be the last time that Dr. Hazard would see Dora, and in particular, Margaret Conway. Oh God, why is it not over? We're like two thirds of the way through and it seems like the nightmare's finally over. She killed her sister, basically. The, the other sister finally escapes. Why is this not the end? I mean, the only end should be like Dr. Hazard goes to prison. Starvation Heights. 
The people of Alala are mostly descended from Norwegian and other Scandinavian immigrants who settled in the area in the mid-19th century. In the early 20th century, its community mostly consisted of tradesmen and farmers, and according to Greg Olson, a resident of Alala and the author of the book Starvation Heights, Dr. Hazard and her husband didn't fit in with the local community. Dr. Hazard in particular was considered a whimsical snob, and most of her neighbors thought that her fasting cure was a load of horse Smart people, aren't they? While people like the Williamson sisters were easily taken in by Dr. Hazard's lofty claims and authoritative air when they visited her office in Seattle, the residents of Alala watched on as their health declined once they placed themselves in Dr. Hazard's care. According to Alala resident Lucien Urquhart, quote, these people would walk by the school or the house and they were so thin. Oh my, they were just ghastly thin. Very sick. And they always asked for food. They would walk down the hill to the little Frageria store. They'd go down there. I try to get food from them. I understand she used to have them on a very strict diet, mostly tomatoes and tomato juices. It was pathetic to watch them. Mama, I know, fed them. She gave them bread or anything she had. She felt sorry for them. The residents of Alala fed the living skeletons what they could and sometimes helped them to escape from Dr. Hazard's clutches by taking them in and putting them in contact with their worried friends and family. But in some cases, they could only watch on in silence as the emaciated bodies of her patients were loaded onto a ship and taken to Butterworth and Sons in Seattle. When Claire passed away in May 1911, the townspeople were already well aware that Dr. Hazard already starved at least 10 people to death over the course of just four years. The Seattle newspapers didn't refer to her as the starvation doctor for nothing. Shortly after she'd arrived in Alala in 1907, Dr. Hazard started advertising her services in a local newspaper, and Daisy Hagland was one of her first patients. She was already dying from stomach cancer when she went to see Dr. Hazard for help and fasted for 50 days before she died on the 8th of February 1908. Next was Ida Wilcox, who fasted for 47 days and died on the 26th of September 1908. <laughs> this makes no sense. She's like, what do you do? I do fasting. Everyone who goes there ends up dying of starvation. I mean, the fasting's successful. Ultimately, they die from eating so little. Viola Heaton had been singing Dr. Hazard's praises for weeks, and despite her friends and family's pleas that she should eat something, she kept on with Dr. Hazard's prescribed treatment until she finally passed away on the 24th of March 1909, and Blanche B. Tyndall fasted for just 28 days before she died on the 18th of June 1909. Both Viola and Blanche's death certificates noted that they died from starvation. How is no one shutting this down? Come on! Maud Whitney was receiving treatments at Wilderness Heights when she passed away on the 20th of July, 1910. Dr. Hazard performed her autopsy and signed her death certificate and noted that she died from chronic pancreatitis. Earl Edward Ehrman was an engineer who suffered from chronic heartburn, and by the time his friends managed to rescue him and take him to a hospital, he was already too far gone. He died of starvation on the 29th of March, 1910. Dr. Hazard's other deceased patients included C.A. Harrison, who was the publisher of the Alaska Yukon magazine. And then there was Frank Southard, who was a partner in the Seattle-based law firm Morris Southard and Shipley. He had called Dr. Hazard in order to help lose weight, and he lost 77 pounds, or 35 kilograms, while following her fasting methods. It's speculated that the fast caused irreparable damage to his kidneys, and he died of kidney failure on the 30th of March, 1910, while on a camping trip. And then there was Eugene Stanley Wakelin, who allegedly committed suicide while he was undergoing Dr. Hazard's fasting treatment at Wilderness Heights. The most notable of her patients, though, was Lewis Rader, a politician who served in the Washington House of Representatives. And it already sounds like she's got some fairly notable people in her starvation location. On the 29th of April 1910, the Coos Bay Times released an article with the headline, Starving Himself to Death in Vain Effort to Cure. The bylines further went on to explain that L.E. Rader found on the verge of death in Seattle Hotel. Fasting cure is fatal to others. Latest victim formerly prominent in Washington politics. How? 
is this still going on? Many people have starved to death under her care and it's just like, oh yes, I'll still go. I'll still I'll go out there and starve to death. Like, what the fuck? According to Greg Olson, an employee of the Outlook Hotel had called the Department of Health to let them know that one of their guests was starving himself to death. When two officials from the Department of Health went to see him, he explained that he was undergoing Dr. Hazard's fasting treatment to cure a stomach issue that he had and insisted that he didn't need their help. According to the Coos Bay Times, there is no one with authority to compel Raider to take food. The only way to save his life, the city physician says, is to have him declared insane and feed him forcibly. Which would seem quite reasonable. If someone's starving themselves to death and they're going to die, I would say that there's something wrong with them mentally. Like, any rational person would be like, no, I'm going to die. And I think the problem is, like, you start starving yourself, your brain stops working properly, and you just stay on that same path. Like, obviously, some someone needs to intervene and force feed. When Dr. Hazard heard of the visit, she moved Mr. Raider to a different room and refused anyone entry, explaining later on that until the coming of these officers, Mr. Raider was able to walk from his room to the bath, but since that time, he continually begged to be protected from outsiders and permitted to die, if need be, in peace. On the 12th of May 1910, the Wenatchee ran an article with the headline, Starvation Treatment Killed Ellie Rader, formerly prominent in state politics, died this morning as a result of 29 days fast. Dr. Hazard performed an autopsy on his body and claimed that it died of prolapsis of the stomach. He was cremated by Butterworth and Sons, and despite the fact that the Department of Health was looking into his death, nothing came of their investigation since it was well known that he'd been willingly starving himself. He was survived by his wife and four sons, and in return for treating Mr. Raider, Dr. Hazard received a plot of land that Mr. Raider had owned in Alala, the one that she had proudly named Wilderness Heights, and where she would finally build the sanitarium that she'd been dreaming of for all those years. How does this continue? It's insane that it just continues. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The Price of Justice After they left Alala, Dora and Margaret made their way to Tacoma, a city approximately 30 miles south of Seattle. There, they made contact with the British consulate and managed to set up a meeting with then-vice-consul Lucian Agassiz and arranged to meet him at the Tacoma Hotel. Only a few days had passed since they'd left Alala, and Mr. Agassiz was shocked by Dora's appearance. Though she was getting better, she only weighed about 60 pounds, 27 kilograms at this point, and Mr. Agassiz listened with growing horror as Dora, Margaret, and Mr. Herbert explained to him what the Williamson sisters had gone through 
while they were under the care of Dr. Linda Hazard. They explained that Dora and Claire weren't the only ones who were being treated by Dr. Hazard at the time, and that more people were slowly being starved to death. They also told Mr. Agassiz about the guardianship issue and that Dr. Hazard still had full control over Dora's finances. Margaret also explained that when they'd left Wilderness Heights that morning, quote, Mrs. Hazard declared that she had the law of the United States on her side and that, well, wherever you take Dora, she won't live long. That is f***ed up. Yo, come on, Herbert, you legend. Let's get something done. He's already doing He's like, let's get in touch with the embassy. We're going to figure this out. Let's go, legends. So after Mr. Agassiz left the Tacoma Hotel that afternoon, one of the first things he did was hire an attorney, Mr. Frank Kelly, and together the two of them would start the process of dissolving the hazard's guardianship over Dora. Wow. That's some, like, top-notch help for him. Like, uh, what was his name? What was his job? Like, consul or some sh Wow. Good for you. Getting on it. On the 31st of July 1911, Mr. Kelly and Mr. Agassiz came face to face with Dr. Hazard. Dora's guardianship hearing was held in a private room at the Arlington Hotel in Seattle. Judge Lester Still listened as both parties stated their case, and in his judgment he said, quote, Think of this weak, emaciated young woman lying on her back in the woods of Kitsap County, who, according to Dr. Hazard, so showed signs of insanity. And then think of a doctor sitting by her bedside and telling her tales of that awful gulch close by and suggesting suicide to the mind of the girl. Dr. Hazard may not have realized what she was doing, but such a person is a dangerous person to administer to women and children. There is, to me, something which seems unholy about the relations of this woman and her patients. All the money this girl and her sister had was practically in the hands of Dr. Hazard, and this does not look right to a court of equity. Yeah, any reasonable person. Surely the judge is like, yo, guardianship over, what the f***? And yo, police, get up there to that Hazard place and make sure that no one's starving to death and then put her in prison. Okay, let's go. Judge still voided the Hazard's guardianship over Ms. Dora Williamson, excellent, and ruled the Dr. Linda Hazard to repay Ms. Dora Williamson an amount of $973, allowing her to keep an amount of $597 for her services. Okay, fine. Nice that some money is coming back. Mr. Agassiz was determined to prove that Dr. Hazard had murdered Claire Williamson. Mr. Agassiz, you legends. They're really going for it. I like this a lot. And he and Margaret told Dora's story to every journalist who'd listen, ramping up public support for the case. Mr. Kelly and Mr. Agassiz also issued adverts in newspapers all over the country, explaining that they were looking for more information regarding Dr. Hazard and her Institute of Natural Therapeutics, and heard that when she'd still been living in Minneapolis back in 1901, the fasting doctor had been accused of causing the death of a Miss Gertrude Young by starving her to death. Yes, remember that? Back at the beginning of the episode? Nothing could be proved, however, and Linda Burfield had been free to go. When Ms. Kelly and Mr. Agassiz met with the King County Prosecuting Attorney John Murphy, he handed them a file labeled Hazard Complaints. In it, they found a list of Dr. Hazard's other known victims, as well as documents relating to the investigations that had been made into their causes of death. But up to that point, the local authorities couldn't charge Dr. Hazard with murder because her victims had all willingly signed up for her starvation cure. According to Dr. J. E. Crichton, then head of the Department of Health, quote, I told my inspectors to watch Dr. Hazard and to report to me if she treated any infants and they died under her care. All the cases that we were able to find were those of adults who had put themselves voluntarily under her treatment. I still think, like, you can't volunteer to, to die, right? There's this, like, I'm... God, this is legally complicated, isn't it? Because it's like, yes, they're all adults and they're all making decisions. And it's like, if you want to starve yourself to death, fine, starve yourself to death. But there's definitely a problem here, right? I'm not quite sure what the problem is, but obviously there's a problem. 
It was Mr. Agassiz who noted that three of Dr. Hazard's deceased patients had been British citizens. John Flux had immigrated to the U.S. from Gloucester, England, in order to buy a ranch. He had been fasting under Dr. Hazard's supervision for 53 days before passing away on the 10th of February 1911. 26-year-old Eugene Wakelin was from New Zealand. According to Dr. Hazard, he had shot himself, but his body wasn't discovered until three weeks after he died. Dr. Hazard had made herself the executor of his estate, a measly $223 or $6,870 today. After his death, an amount of $155 or $4,770 today was paid to Butterworth and Sons to pay for the cost of his funeral. Jesus Christ, funerals are expensive. And the remaining $68 was paid to the Hazard Institute of Natural Therapeutics to settle his outstanding bill. Despite the fact that his death had definitely been suspicious, nothing was done about it, according to Mr. Agassiz. Quote, My contention is that the county coroner's office, or at least the deputy county coroner of King's County, who was based at Butterworth and Sons, has been working for some years, passed hand-in-hand with Dr. Hazard. It is very hard to get all the real facts. But if they wanted to lay criminal charges against Dr. Hazard, Mr. Agassiz and Mr. Kelly were going to need the support of the local authorities to prosecute the case. But prosecuting attorney Thomas Stevenson outright told Mr. Kelly that Kitsap County didn't have the financial resources to investigate their allegations against Dr. Hazard. <laughs> Is that no, no, no? We can only investigate small crimes. We don't have enough money to go after murderers. We just go after like little thefts, little bit of shoplifting here and there, parking tickets. That's what we can handle. We can't handle murders. There's no money for murders. Because three of the victims had been British citizens, Mr. Agassiz tried to convince the Crown to cover the costs of the investigation, but when they refused to turn the death of Claire Williamson into an international incident, Dora agreed to foot the bill to ensure Dr. Hazard would be made to answer for causing the death of her sister. Yeah, that's immediately what I thought. It's like, wait, 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 they're super rich. Just pay for it. Just be like, I'll pay for it. <laughs> F you, I'm gonna pay for it. I'm gonna use money to bury your ass. The Quack Doctor. Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard was arrested on the 5th of August 1911 and was charged with one count of first-degree murder. The trial was set to start on the 15th of January 1912 and took place in the Kitsap County Superior Court in Port Orchard, Washington State. It was heard by Judge John Yakey, and during the prosecution's opening remarks, the court heard that Dr. Linda Hazard had, between the dates of the 27th of February and the 20th of May 1911, murdered Claire Williamson by depriving her of food that was sufficient in quantity and quality to sustain life. Over a hundred witnesses were called, and the prosecution used them to explain that the Williamson sisters had been perfectly healthy when they'd signed up for Dr. Hazard's fasting cure. The defense, however, argued that Claire had already been critically ill when she'd reached out to Dr. Hazard for help, and despite knowing that she wouldn't be able to cure either Claire or Dora, she'd still taken them in and treated them to the best of her ability. We believe the evidence will show that during the time these girls were under Dr. Hazard's treatment, they received care such as the tenderest mother would give her child. Dora did her part for the prosecution, and over the course of two days, she explains what she and her sister had to endure during Dr. Hazard's treatments. Her uncle, Mr. Herbert, told the court how had only received notice that Claire had died three days after her death. He told the court about his meeting with Dr. Hazard in her office and of the organs she had presented as Claire's. He explained that the body he had seen couldn't have been Claire's and that he was told that Dora was insane. Mr. Hazard told me in her experience such cases grew worse and the patient grew worse and generally became hopelessly insane. She also gave me her opinion as a doctor that Dora would not live much longer. When Mr. Kelly asked Mr. Herbert what he found when he finally went to see Dora after Claire's funeral, Mr. Herbert explained that Dora was perfectly sound and competent. She recognized me and spoke to me. 
Some of the prosecution's witnesses also didn't help Dr. Hazard's case, since they all described the horrific decline of Claire and Dora's health once they came under Dr. Hazard's care, with Dr. T.J. Baldwin, one of the state's medical experts, calling Dr. Hazard's treatment a gross disregard of ordinary and usual care and knowledge of the human body. Jesus, yes, obviously. Come on, this is... it's all happening! To strengthen the state's claims that Dr. Hazard had murdered Claire for financial gain, William Collier, a cashier from the Northern Bank and Trust, explained how the Hazard had first withdrawn an amount of $1,005, that's about $30,000 today, from Claire's account in April 1911 and then withdrew the rest on the 26th of May. When the prosecuting attorney, Mr. Stevensons, asked Mr. Collier if he'd been aware that Claire had passed away on the 19th of May, he said, I never knew of a death at all. I was never advised of it. When the defense called Nurse Sherman to testify on behalf of Dr. Hazard, she claimed that the sisters were picky eaters who'd refused to eat the food that she'd made them and that there was never a shortage of food in their apartment at Buena Vista. However, Mr. Kelly masterfully got her to admit that Dr. Hazard had, in fact, placed them on a prolonged fast and that she'd controlled what food they were allowed to eat. He also got her to admit that she'd been worried enough about the sister's health that she'd consulted Dr. Brewer in order to find out what she could to save them, the very same Dr. Brewer who is now an expert witness for the state. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's a bad sign where it's like, yeah, no, I went to consult with that guy and he told me this and now he's, oh no, he's on the opposite side. <laughs> Dr. Hazard's going to prison. Where she f***ing belongs. The defense also called Andrew Hill to the stand. He was the ambulance driver who had transported the sisters from Buena Vista to Alala and testified that yes, he was there when Claire had given Dr. Hazard permission to withdraw the $1,005 from her account. Mr. Kelly was the one that revealed that Mr. Hill was actually a driver for Butterworth and Sons, and when he listed the names of Dr. Hazard's known victims, Mr. Hill admitted that he recognized some of those names because their funerals had all been arranged by Butterworth and Sons, suggesting that the owners and Dr. Hazard were co-conspirators. Maybe maybe doesn't it just mean that she's that's their her preferred funeral home i feel like that's a bit i mean it is it isn't that a bit of a stretch now during the trial dr hazard's lawyers forbade her from testifying in court rightly knowing that if she was allowed to explain her actions she'd only dig a deeper hole for herself yeah i was surprised by this is it it's quite rare apparently for the person who's actually being prosecuted to take the stand and like talk about stuff at least according to casual criminals that I've done and then movies I've seen, because they're like, well, yeah, that's fine. You get to explain things, but also the prosecution gets to ask all these questions and they can go wrong. That can go wrong for you. They can manipulate you and twist you into saying things that you didn't want to say. And that's a big problem. So it does feel like really guilty if you don't take the stand right. <laughs> the lawyers will be like, no, don't do it. So I've been innocent. And they'll be like, don't do it. They'll just make you look bad. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> According to her, the Williamson sisters had convinced themselves of the efficacy of the fasting cure and had fully determined to place themselves under my care. After examination, I felt that I was face to face with organic disease in both sisters, and I positively refused to fast them. They begged me to reconsider, and I finally consented to place them on a restricted diet and to apply the accessories of the treatment. At the start of the fast, Claire Williamson weighed only 78 pounds in her clothes and was emaciated to the last degree. Her circulation was most sluggish, and she complained of constant extreme exhaustion. About two weeks after beginning treatment, Claire was compelled to take to her bed, and shortly after that, in order to care for her in a proper manner, I removed both sisters with their nurses to my own home. Claire gradually failed, however, and died on May the 19th. Here was another instance in which no power on earth could have saved the life of the sufferer. Claire Williamson was in absolute sympathy with the method as applied. End quote. Though she wasn't allowed to voice her opinions in court, she was, however, accused of signaling the witnesses whenever she didn't agree with what they were saying, and during the trial, the jury had to be dismissed so that Judge Yakey could give her a warning himself. 
Quote, there have been times when it is perfectly true that the defendant has showed disapproval of what the witness has been testifying to. I have seen that myself. When one witness testified upon the stand, Mrs. Hazard shook her head to the jury. Whether she has been signaling to this witness, I don't know. But if there has anything like that been done, it is very important. I hope this will stop if it has been done, and I want to caution the defendant now that it must not be done, or else she will be in contempt of court. Oh, so people in the past spoke so weird. That was so hard to read. It's like the words are just in a slightly different order than they should be. The trial dragged on for 16 days, and at the end of it, the prosecution explained that, quote, This case is of unusual significance. We are not here to avenge the death of Claire Williamson, but to protect the public not only from Mrs. Hazard, but also from others like her. <laughs> you aren't? Oh, isn't the sister paying for this? I'll be like, yeah, this is a revenge thing, because f- you. This is just revenge. I like revenge. Let's go. The defense followed it up by explaining that the real reason for this prosecution is that Mrs. Hazard is not a college graduate. Her office consists of having been educated in the school of hard knocks. She has only the common garden variety of intelligence, and because of this, the doctors with degrees cannot stand her competition. She has lost some patients, but where is the physician who has not? She has lost eight in the last 12 years. If she is not losing more than that, why? not let her alone. I'm not sure. Maybe because she's killing them. Now, it goes without saying that if a surgeon loses eight patients in 12 years, it's remarkable. Is it? I don't know how many patients die. If a... Hang on. Is that... Wait, which way is that supposed to be remarkable? I have no idea. Like, surely... And it depends what side of surgery, right? If you're going in for, like, brain surgery that's close to inoperable, and it's like, well, yeah, you might die on the table, but you're going to die if we don't try and remove this tumor from your brain or whatever then surely that surgeon is going to like have a lot more people die than eight over 12 years. Surely they're going to die quite a lot, right? I don't know which way that's supposed to be remarkable. But if your dietician claims that she's only lost eight patients in the last 12 years, well, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, because she's obviously not dealing with high-risk stuff. It's like <laughs> it's like going to like the dermatologist. Although I suppose you could get skin cancer and stuff. Like, I don't know, some doctor who doesn't really deal with um, like uh, an eye doctor or something, or uh, a hair doctor's a thing. <laughs> and then it's like, oh yeah, no, I've lost many patients. Like, how? <laughs> You're not even dealing with something that's deadly. Anyway, the jury returns on February the 4th, 1912, and declared that we, the jury, in the case of the state of Washington against Linda Burfield Hazard, do find the defendant guilty of manslaughter. And on the 7th of February, Judge Yakey sentenced her to spend between two and 20 years in a state penitentiary in Walla Walla. And after her request for a retrial was denied, the court was dismissed. That is a very wide-ranging prison sentence. <laughs> yeah, somewhere between two and 20 years. You'd be like, two years? Okay. Okay, considering I killed people. That ain't that and then just and between 20 you're like the f- judge <laughs> how about some certainty here come on the financial starvationist now at least two of the podcasts i'd listened to during my research noted that it wasn't clear why linda hazard was found guilty of manslaughter instead of first degree murder that's because greg olson's book starvation heights is one of the main sources on her case and he never explained her sentence in detail but here on the casual premise we pride ourselves on digging a little deeper yes we do because i had access to the digital copies of her case files i came across a letter that samuel hazard had written to the state board of control in it he summarizes the findings of the court and explains that linda hazard was found guilty of manslaughter because in administrating her fasting treatment she had negligently carelessly and unscientifically destroyed a human life in an effort as a physician to preserve that life Okay, well, there we go. That's pretty clear for manslaughter. 
But was she in a, was she really thinking she was preserving life? Was she really that delusional? And thank you, Emma, for digging deeper on that. That's really nice where, you know, because often there's people just rely on like one major source and stuff and kind of tell their story from there. I always think it's nice to to go deeper and find more sources because I don't know. It's really cool that you did. Thank you. This means that the court founds that Linda Hazard had a duty as a medical professional to provide Claire with a certain level of care, and she hadn't, which would be classed as gross negligence manslaughter in the UK. Thank you for the clarification, Liam. Yeah, Liam's another writer here on The Casual Criminalist, and he is also a lawyer, so he helps us out with this stuff sometimes. The case of the starvation doctor had been international news, and it was reported that Linda Hazard was up for parole after only serving two years of her sentence. Multiple people sent letters to the State Board of Control and then the Governor of Washington, Ernest Lister, asking that Linda Hazard should be pardoned. It turned out that not everyone was convinced that she was in fact guilty of causing Claire's death. Um... I guess I can get behind the gross neck. Uh, what was it called? Gross negligence manslaughter in the UK. I can kind of get behind that. I mean, I don't think she should be pardoned because she's guilty of this crime. Pardons like where they're like, we're really sorry we did, we convicted you of this. Don't do that. Her lawyer and friend, John Arthur, had written a letter to the superintendent at Walla Walla, Henry Drum, on the 24th of December 1913 and claimed that Linda Hazard had done nothing wrong. Quote, I mention this to you as an old-time friend, in order that you may understand that Dr. Hazard, while convicted, is in my judgment not a criminal, but on the contrary is a strong woman who believes that she has a mission in the world, and that mission is to save people from the injurious effects of medicine and to heal their troubles by the cleansing of their systems and the administration of light foods. I wish you to look upon this prospective prisoner of yours in the light of what I say and to treat her not as a human fiend, but as a much misjudged woman. How about... How about, what was this guy's name? How about John Arthur? Instead of that, how about we let the courts decide who's guilty? Hmm, maybe the jury? Jury of the peers? That seems fair, doesn't it, Mr. Arthur? Prick. H.O. Mesford, one of the men who'd served on the jury, wrote that he believed Linda Hazard was innocent, but had been pressured to vote against her and that he'd hoped the Supreme Court would overturn her conviction, which it didn't. Excellent. Emma Thorne Gates, the widow of Ellie Rader, one of Linda Hazard's victims, also wrote to the State Board of Control and explained that, quote, I was present at the trial and was and am thoroughly convinced that she did not have anything like a fair trial. End quote. A lawyer based in Seattle named J.W. Bryan wrote that, quote, I was well informed as the trial procedure and was in court quite often as the case was being tried. In the first place, this abominable C. E. Lucian Agassiz, British minister at Tacoma, had done everything he possibly could to poison sentiments. The Times of Seattle, which under former management was a very vindictive newspaper, tried the case before the issues were made up. The jurors had read the Times. The most bitter articles had appeared at the greatest length and with the most frequent recurrence. Why would anyone jump to this woman's this woman's defense like this? It seems entirely unreasonable. From everything I read, she seems like an absolute monster. Maybe misguided, but like, still in control of her actions and letting people die under her watch. The Secretary of the Chamber of Commerce also piped in, explaining that it was clear to him that the Williamson sisters were, quote, of the class that hardly know how to spend their time. So weary are they of doing nothing, a new thing to do is a relief. They are open to criticism as to sane judgment in almost anything they do. Fasting, too, is no new remedy. These women were of age, and why should they have recourse to the law for free and voluntary acts of their own? Well, how free was it? Because at the end, they were like, please give me food, please, I want to leave. And Hazard was like, no, no, no. 
No, 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 no food for you. Most surprising was a petition signed by 121 residents of Wangainu, New Zealand, who claimed that at least 106 of them had fasted before and that they agree with Dr. Hazard that fasting alone, quote, does not cause starvation and death and that it does in nearly all cases cure disease. When a cure cannot be had because the disease has gone too far for any cure. Even if Dr. Hazard had put Ms. Williamson on a fast and she had died under it, at the worst, that could be an error of judgment and not worthy of prosecution for murder. Well, she wasn't prosecuted for murder, she was prosecuted for manslaughter. As a result, Linda Hazard was pardoned by Governor Lister in December 1915, but she had a medical license revoked, which she should have never had in the first place. What the f Seeing as how great a number of her supporters seem to be based in New Zealand, the Hazards moved to Wanganu. According to the Wanganu Chronicle published on the 16th of July 1917, she had opened a new practice and was offering fasting, dietic, chiropractic, and osteopathic treatments. <laughs> and was once again claiming that she was a qualified medical practitioner who possesses the unique distinction of being the holder of the only license for fasting in the world. Which, I mean, is the vast, so I guess you could just straight up lie. And also, it's like, ah, oh, no one's gonna know. That was in America. This is in New Zealand. They don't talk to each other. And then they do this by letters. <laughs> it takes forever. In June 1918, she was once again in trouble with the law since she was accused of practicing as a doctor without a license, with the magistrate hearing the case saying that the law of New Zealand required that persons should have a long training before they could practice medicine or surgery. Excellent. Sensible New Zealand there, right? Like, letting people not just call themselves doctor for no reason. She was ordered to remove any mention of her being a doctor from any advertisements or pamphlets that she published or handed out and was fined £5 plus costs. Hazard's returned to Alala in 1921, and there Linda Hazard finally got to build her sanitarium, which she advertised as a school of health. It burned down in 1935, oh no, and never reopened, oh no, and in 1938 the 70-year-old Linda Hazard fell ill. After preaching about the wonders of natural healing for the past 40 years, she placed herself on a fast in order to cure whatever ailed her and starved to death, passing away on the 24th of June 1938. Oh no! Proving that fasting was not in fact a cure for everything, when it cured her diseases, didn't it? With death! Dismembered appendices. One. Linda Hazard is thought to have been responsible for the deaths of at least 18 people, four of whom passed away in the year between Claire's death and Linda Hazard's arrest. And don't forget, she got pardoned. Christ. Two. Despite the suggestion that Butterworth and Sons were particularly involved in whatever scam Linda Hazard ran, no criminal case was brought against them with regards to their crimes, and they still exist today. Yeah, I was kind of like, I don't know, that just seems convenient. Or like, unfortunate. She, they're just the preferred uh, undertakers or whatever. After the trial, Dora went back to Australia on a visit to England in 1914, met and fell in love with Reverend Windsor Allen Chaplin. They got married in Gloucester on the 7th of May 1914 and lived happily ever after. For a while, unfortunately, he drowned just three months after their marriage and Dora was left widowed. She continued to live in England and passed away herself in 1945, aged 72. 4. Linda's husband, Samuel Hazard, was a deserter, con man, and well-known bigamist. When they got married in November 1903, he had already abandoned his first family and married another woman named Viva Fitzpatrick on the 7th of March 1903 under the name Sam Hargrave. When Viva realized that he'd been involved with Linda Hazard before they'd even met, Viva took him to court for bigamy, and he was sentenced to spend two years in prison in 1904. <laughs> that came back to bite you, didn't it? After his release, the Hazards left Minneapolis and moved to Alala. Number 5. Linda Hazard wrote two books on fasting, Fasting for the Cure of Disease and Diet in the Disease and Systemic Cleansing. She also revised her first book at least five times, republishing it in 1927 under the title Scientific Fasting, The Ancient and Modern Key to Health. Funny enough, she was quite open regarding her treatment of the people who'd passed away under her care and added their names to the facts regarding their deaths to every revision of her book, explaining in detail why she couldn't be held responsible. <laughs> and six. And lastly, thank you to my longtime friend, Merlis, for recommending this case. Yes, thank you. This was a cracker. I really, I mean, 
I really enjoyed reading about all this death. But this one was like, it was far enough in the past that you quite detach from it. And also, well, it kind of had a bad ending, didn't it? Hatter got away with everything and got pardoned. At least she spent some time in the in the prison, which was nice. But she, it's kind of a rubbish ending, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know why I like this one. <laughs> Thanks for being here, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.